This is Fam Electric Ghost, and we're live on our Facebook, Twitch, and um, YouTube channels, and we're with Jason Blasco, and we'll let him talk about what he does and what, what he's all about, and that's what we're going to get into right now. So Aloha, the- <laughs> Aloha, Phantom Electric Ghost. Uh, should I call you uh, Phantom Electric Ghost or Keith? or Call me Peg. Peg, Peg. Or, Peg or Phantom Electric Ghost. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm uh, I'm live on the island of Kauai, and uh, I've been a music publicist on the independent circuit since 2005. That's cool. And uh, also recently delve into being an experimental artist. I'm referred to as a by my producer issue. I'm a beast. Uh, calls me a utopian experiment. That's that's my my alley. I'm into that. <laughs> um. Yeah, so like, like maybe talking about your story, I always ask people, like when I get into like what they're about, and typically I interview musicians, and you are a mm-hmm. musician, so we could get into like when did you first get into music? How did you start? the The first time I got into music, I God, it's I it's been such a long journey. I mean, I think I've been hooked on music from from the time I was a little boy. So I'm talking like. Uh, I'm talking probably like uh, maybe Christina Aguilera's album that uh, that 1999 album that she, she came out with her self-titled uh, debut album on RCA um, mm-hmm. that and uh, LFO I had to review it for a small uh, small company which was then called SonicNet and it became it was bought out by uh, VH1 eventually um, but uh, I I would review albums in high school. And I think when I listened to that record, it was very powerful. I think uh, the song Mulan Reflections, uh, I think about that. And that, I don't know why, that just had such an impact on me. And I was like, I want to do this. Um, I also had uh, my cousin, my cousin Ben Runkle. He was was actually uh, a promoter at uh, University of Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, He promoted like... um, you know, hip hop generation as a movement where he actually did classes. He got about uh, $300,000 in grant money. And uh, he took me there when I was in high school. And uh, they had uh, artists like uh, Chuck D, who was pr- promoting uh, Napster at the time. He was a really big advocate of Napster. Uh, Chuck D, African Bombada, you know, Tony Touch, all of these, all these people, you know, like I said, Wendy Day from the Rap Coalition. And I, I was just kind of like overwhelmed because I was around all these. Now they're now they're considered legends, mm-hmm. and I think that's when I really caught the bug between you know that Christina Aguilera record that uh, that I reviewed when I was in high school. I was literally I didn't even have a uh, computer. I was literally writing that all down with a piece of paper and pencil. So um, the review, the initial review when I was listening to the record, I'm, I'm talking like Sony Discman, you know. Oh wow. Yeah. So, so that's, that's interesting. So when did you um, actually decide that you had a talent and you wanted to write your own songs? Well, that's, uh, that's been kind of interesting because like I said, I started uh, in a music publicity game in around 2005. I started working with a number of different uh, recording artists and, um, and then all of a sudden, like I, I met Kevin and I think Kevin and uh, Walter Neely, both of them were very influential in uh, Kevin Stratton and Walter Neely were very influential in me kind of steering me into this direction 
I Walter Neely was a uh, independent uh, artist. I met him probably a few months before I met Kevin, and uh, we were at a party. We were just kicking back, you know, ha having a few beers, etc. And uh, and Walter's like, he just realized that I that I you know could absorb a lot of information, and he was like, "You ever thought about doing music?" And I was like. No, I mean, you know, I didn't have any of that background in far as production goes. And he's like, no, no, I'm not talking about production. I'm talking about, you know, spinning that record, you know, or getting that record played. You know, I yeah, call yeah. it spin. I call it Spinderella. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Spinderella, that record, you know, after uh, after uh, Salt and Pepper, probably. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but yeah, and I was like, I guess it was kind of an epiphany. I'm like, you know, because I had just started my sports writing career. I'd been in it, that for seven years. I started that when I was in high school. Kind of funny story. I interviewed a, a guy uh, that was in the minor leagues. Uh, he was a 10th round draft pick out of the St. Louis Cardinals. His name was uh, Albert Pujols. I interviewed him when he was a minor leaguer. Wow. But, you know, so I was doing web-based stuff during that dot-com boom and bust uh, situation. Um, and like I said, uh, Anyway, back reverting back to the story, you know, um, Walt, Walter was like, you ever thought about it? And he was uh, he was fresh from uh, Katrina because he was displaced because of Katrina. And so he was taking some of his money that he got to uh, to build a, a record company called Above the World Entertainment. And uh, I was like, you know what? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then I met Kevin, and uh, Kevin was working with a, uh, a a vocalist at the time. Her name was Dusty, and they had uh, a thing called Stealing Beauty, a duet. And uh, all of a sudden, it was like, I don't know, it just felt like home, man, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, this is where I belong. This is what I was meant to do. Um, you know, I was around, you know, I've been around music, I think, probably all my life. Uh, you know, I'm just trying to, my mind's kind of racing right now, but I'm just trying to think about, you know, how many different, you know, scenarios I've been, you know, been through. But music's always been a part of my life. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think it's interesting how people come into it because, like, you know, in my story, you know, I started on a clarinet. And you can't mm -hmm. really write. You can't really write electronic music on a clarinet, <laughs> and um, and then eventually I kind of got into synths because like I grew up like like you know in in the middle of like MTV just started, mm -hmm. so like like seventy nine eighty, and then I think I saw Joy Division, and then when I saw Joy Division, I said that's it, that's it, that's that's what I want, and then they became New Order, and I'm like yeah, that's even more it, and then I'm like. Yeah, I, I want to get into that. And so I started going to Guitar Center and finding the sense. And I just like willed it because I didn't know how. I mean, I came from a clarinet. I had never played keyboard. Mm -hmm. I kind of forced it because I wanted to do it because I saw these people, like my heroes, doing it. I saw Bowie. I saw Stevie Wonder. I saw all these people doing stuff. And I said, well, you know what? I'm a musician. I mean, I'm on a different instrument. But I kind of forced myself into it because I wanted it. And I think I think creative people like if you feel that burn, you go and mm -hmm. find a way. So did, did how, what was your did you have an instrument of choice or you just like use your voice and your, your lyrics? What 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 were you doing? Well, I'm actually a dropout saxophone player. 
Um, yeah, I, uh, I started with a, a guy who was, who ended up being very big on the, uh, Chicago music scene in, in school. His name's, uh, Greg Ward with, uh, the jazz music scene there in Chicago. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't on the jazz music scene, but I started out with somebody who made it there, um, playing in, in middle school. And I, I, I put it down and he never did. So... <laughs> So I, uh, I was kind of behind on it. Um, I bought my, you know, saxophone and I had to, you know, like I said, I was kind of behind on playing it. And so I just never really seemed to kind of pick it up. And then I kind of put it down and then I kind of found rap music during that time too. So that was kind of an interesting transition. Yeah. I think like, so hip hop is a big part of rap music and probably mm -hmm. like more like the classic hip hop. You know, like the the vinyl DJ based hip hop is that kind of where where you started? I uh, I really started. I picked up that uh, Warren G Regulators uh, mm -hmm. record, uh, you know, which had the Michael McDonald sample on it, and oh, I yeah. was just I was just hooked on. I know there's a huge backstory behind the publishing of that because I think Michael McDonald grabbed most of the publishing on that uh, number yeah. one record, but uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, I was I was just I was just hooked on on that that West Coast uh, sound. Yeah, that sentence. I was a big fan of like De La Soul. I mm -hmm. I, I really liked FIFA High and Rising and De La Me, Soul. Myself was, and yeah. I, right? Yeah. And well, like, I think like you look at the Bomb Squad from mm -hmm. Public Enemy and you look at De La Soul. They're very super innovative use of samples, mm -hmm. like using samples to the degree where they layered them or reconfigured them in such a way it became their own thing. And they had to pay for it, and you know, like some of their records, like they sold, they're not even back in back in circulation because of all the the rights issues with them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but but um, it's just innovative what you can do with a sampler when you actually treat it like art, you know. And oh yeah, not, yeah. It's because like, it is. It's like if somebody, oh, they're just sampling. But there's there's something to actually getting it to link with an eight oh eight or nine oh nine or a seven twenty seven or whatever whatever drum machine you use and, you know, then you get into MPCs and stuff like that. It's a whole art. I mean, I don't really dabble with that. You know, what I do is more like progressive, more like Yes and Genesis and Pink Floyd, maybe Funkadelic, but um, I do respect it. And I'm actually in, in, in considering getting like an Akai MPC like machine to dabble in it a little bit more than what I've done um in the past and actually make like a hip-hop record so nice. in, the, in the future the ghost is going to take kind of the funk stuff we do and the punk mm. stuff we do and kind of try to approach it with a hip-hop production thing we're actually looking at in the kai force to do that but um are you looking for like uh to do a compilation record or is it with, no, a, with a number a, of different artists no it's just gonna be an original ghost record done like a rap record are you gonna put it on uh, vinyl? That's been a that's been an interesting uh, development right now. Is uh, the the physical you know product has actually you know come back. It, vinyl yeah, records yeah. surpassed. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you. No, vinyl no, records cool. uh, surpassed uh, CDs for the first time since 1987, and I they are now making <laughs> making yeah, 626 million dollars a year. Well, the thing about vinyl is I think is it's the thing I like about it is mm -hmm. I'm a musician. I do projects. I don't just do singles. And so for an artist that actually has an album, 
it's a really cool medium because like if you want people to listen to your complete thought, vinyl is mm-hmm. the way because the kids who buy the vinyl, they listen to the whole thing, you know? And if you're just doing a Spotify playlist game, that's cool. But, but if you're, if an artist actually has concepts like, like high-minded stuff, like the wall or Tommy or Quadrophene, then like one song doesn't do it. And vinyl is a way to get people to want to listen to more than one song and want to listen to a song that's longer than two minutes, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, it just seems like the attention span continues to condense just gradually. And now I, I think I, I've read uh, recent facts, the average attention span, this is really scary, uh, is eight seconds. Yeah, it's hard to get a big like rock opera in. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. For sure. Like, uh, like it would have been interesting to see like, you know, um, how Bohemian Rhapsody would have done in today's market. It, uh, wouldn't, if it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't even make it out the door with the way people are, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's very, the only the market really, it's like, if you look at like a Tyler, the creator, he is mm-hmm. able to get people to listen to his complete thought. Like almost every project he does is a concept, mm-hmm. you know, and if you and it, he, he, there, there are multiple songs strung together with multiple videos strung together telling stories. What do you, and, uh, what do you feel like, uh, what do you feel like makes him successful to be able to get that across? Well, when he started with Odd Future, they were like doing mixtapes, and the mixtapes had that feel. I listened to mm-hmm. them from the beginning, and I knew they were kind of horrorcore or whatever. Mm-hmm. They were doing all this shock value stuff, but behind it was he was using synths. He was actually writing original stuff, and I and mm-hmm. I like I respect that. So I heard I heard the fact that he was playing Juno one hundred sixes, like could hear mini modes, and he was not just sampling; he was actually playing. Mm-hmm. And so then I respected that. And then I had heard Earl Sweatshirt, and his delivery was like just as good as MF Doom. And I'm like, and so they had the bones. I mean, they had Frank Ocean doing vocals with this R and B great stuff. It mm-hmm. wasn't samples. They had Frank actually doing original lines. And so when I, I saw the fact that they brought in real lines like from Frank Ocean, they mm-hmm. had a guy that was like MF Doom with with Earl Sweatshirt. I knew that they were a little bit more than what meets the eye. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And um, like uh, you listen to it, same. I think Mac Miller's kind of in that same uh, same. Yeah, category. they were all friends. Yeah, they're all mm-hmm. friends. I mean, they were friends. I mean, Earl was friends with him. Mm-hmm. For sure, they're they're back. Uh, they're probably very close to your neck of the woods, Pittsburgh, I believe, right? Yeah, it's close to well, New Hampshire is kind of far from there, but mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, a, it's north. It's the northeast of the northeast. Like I can get there. It's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a little bit of a hike, <laughs> for sure, for sure. And uh, yeah, so um, yeah, like I said, um, you know, that's that's been uh, it's been interesting to to listen to a lot of different uh, experimental artists. Tyler, the creator, that's a perfect example of you know somebody that's innovative. Yeah, because his stuff is not. If you gave it to an in, some some person today and they didn't know who he was, they would probably wouldn't play it. Mm-hmm. But because it's like a lot of like you know the latest album has tons of jazz on it. It has it it has all these cut scenes. It's got all this. It's got like mixtape type of structure. Mm-hmm. It's you know it's got eight minute songs on it. It's got two minute songs. It's got four minutes. It's got it's varied. It, it's not doing the same beat. It's doing all kinds of clipped up stuff. It's like, it's not, it's very experimental. This kind of reminds me of Prince. Because, you know, Prince's Dirty Mind is a very experimental record. 
you know, for that. Well, he pretty much, that uh, that record pretty much paved the sound of the 80s. Yeah, because it's this kind of stark, you know, um, craft work inspired demo-like thing. And he continued to do pieces of that with songs like Kiss and like uh, When Doves Cry all kind of come from this idea of doing this kind of very, very sparse production. It's on the edge of, edge of being a demo. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. So I think I always tell people, if you get into your DAW and you get too anal about it, right, and you're getting too mm-hmm. precise and you're trying to make it too clean, go back and listen to Dirty Mind. Go go back and listen to Controversy. Go listen to somebody that chose to, like, take the baseline out. Right? Because uh, not to layer it as much, you know, because that's actually better. <laughs> I think that's what I that's what I like about maybe the the bottom half of that Billboard 200 is you have those happy accidents, um, yeah. you know. Um, whereas you know you listen to the top 20 or 30, you're going to hear that perfection. But you know, and obviously Prince was able to, you know, he's a kind of an exception to the rule because he was such an innovator and an entertainer himself. But uh, yeah. You know, he was able to break through and, and get across and, and you know, be, you know, become and set pave the way for, for other artists and basically was the precursor for that sound of the 80s. Or one, and he was one of them for sure. Yeah, because he was able to take the genius of what everybody does. When you're a musician, you take what your reference points are, right? You take mm-hmm. your heroes. He took Santana. He took Funkadelic. He took Sly. He took Hendrix. He took, like, you know like uh, Miles Davis, he took all these ideas and then he got it into this concise form. And what his genius was is taking like a funkadelic workout that might go Mm -hmm. 10 minutes and bringing it down to four minutes. But the funny thing was that he really didn't want to bring it down to four minutes because you listen Mm -hmm. to most of his songs, they're actually longer than that. They got cut down. (laughs) <laughs> yeah it seems like that happens even uh in in today's world and even a little bit of yesteryear the the length of the songs i i wish they would just you know and i understand why you know yeah, i yeah. understand the 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 mechanism behind it but i wish they'd throw some more hidden tracks you know i wish there was a little bit more room for experimentation because that's how we're going to see that innovative uh you know side of creativity well the thing is where you know where i live right here where i talk mm-hmm. to people like you and you're an experimental musician. We'll get more into your your work, but mm-hmm. the, the thing is, is like this is where I live. I choose not to talk to people, you know, in the top ranges, because I kind of treat it like like I was a college radio guy, mm-hmm. and I would always want to bring, you know, people like play stuff from SST and IRS and Sub Pop, and mm-hmm. people say, "Why are you doing that?" I said, "Because that's that's where the cool stuff is," <laughs> you know. So so. You know, and that stuff was not hitting. I mean, eventually- again, uh, again, I hope I'm not re- too redundant, but that's where those happy accidents uh, occur. You know, it's where you get all your innovation. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, everybody's trying to fight in the top twenty. It's the mm-hmm. bottom hundred, bottom two hundred. That once in a while you get a gem. You know, you get you get you get the replacements bust through, and they get and they get no, or you get like the who's could do bust through and gets a top twenty hit, and then you're like able to hear like a really good band, you know, like a, a band that really cares about not just trying to get a hit, but they believe it, you know, they believe in what they're doing. I've got a perfect example of that. And as a matter of fact, I, I had the pleasure of interviewing uh, the, the guy that was 
part of this. Um, you know, Richard Spencer from the Winstons. I interviewed him before he died. Um, he talked a lot about Gregory, his drummer the, from the Winstons. And that five-second sample was the precursor of, of how many different songs and built genres. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and you know what was interesting about about that story, you know, because I talked to Richard. Richard was a part of the Otis Redding band. And the, the interesting thing about that story is Gregory, which I, I still say Gregory's family is owed millions of dollars. I don't know how we do it. I know that sounds idealistic, but yeah, yeah. Uh, but Gregory, you know, built, you know, he built uh, the foundations for some rap music, EDM. All of these yeah. different, uh, like what different happened with uh, yeah, with Funkadelic. You know, if you go back and you you see Funkadelic was sampled to the hilt, mm -hmm. but you know George had a problem because he sold the lights to a lot of that, so he doesn't even get it. <laughs> it's the same thing. At, uh, you know, like you talk about uh, Funkadelic. Uh, you listen to a lot of Dr. Dre's records, uh, especially the, the Chronic. It's all, yeah, it's all Funkadelic. Yeah. I, mean, it's all that, Bernie, I mean, it's all Bernie Worrell stuff. It's all his mini mode stuff. It's all when, him, <laughs> when him and Snoop Dogg are in that rave, he pulls down his shirt and it's a punk funkadelic shirt. He's telling you where well, it all it, came it from. It has to be because that's what it is. I mean, the, the, that, that type of hip hop is all James Brown, you know, lineage to Brown and mm -hmm. Sly. But then it's really what Bernie Worrell and George did. Um, and it, it what they were able to do with funkadelic is like eventually Prince took that. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of what Prince does. I mean, he loved George. He had he did albums with George, and I have. But um, it's it's basically making that more accessible, and making it less like uh, the Grateful Dead and more like Kiss, you know, and more like Purple Rain. Not that they because Parliament could do that. They could play rocked out stuff just like Prince, but they chose to kind of do a Grateful Dead kind of mm -hmm. funk psychedelic version of it, and it wasn't. I mean, when they were at the heyday, they had a lot of people hippies following them. But, but you know, it, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, you know who George, uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers' first uh, producer was, right? On their no, uh, on their debut was, album, Freaky Styley. It was George. George Clinton. Yeah, well, I can tell that because you can hear. It. I mean, they, they're they're really trying to do Bootsy like lines all the time. I mean, they're doing mm -hmm. Bootsy inspired lines. They're doing like a lot. Of, a lot of their funk is heavy P funk. That's what it is. It's it's just more like okay, it's like it's a, it's a rock band interpreting P funk and making it more rocked out. But but yeah, I mean it's the same thing Prince did. I mean he he took it and made it. Purple Rain is like a funked out. It's a rocked out funk. That mm -hmm. actually less funk and more rock. But um, but you can't go there. But yeah, it's interesting. So let me get into your experimental nature. So what if you were to talk about your experimental songs? Maybe talk okay. about like what 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 is your 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 the song that you would tell people to go to in your catalog that kind of defines what your 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 style. Or maybe you have too many to do that, but I have uh, I have two. I have two. I have a song called Uh E U U H H, and that is with uh, recording artist ASAP Ferg. Mm -hmm. And then also I had uh, another guy on there from San Diego. His name was Twan Up on the record. Um, that is, uh, if you listen to that, there's so many different instruments. My, my producer issue, I'm a beast shout outs to him. He's a phenomenal person. He's an amazing, he's a genius. Um, mm -hmm. 
he put so many different uh, instruments and layered on that uh, on U, and uh, you know that that U ended up getting about three hundred thousand streams cumulative. Uh, I sold a, probably I, I was selling records every day with that. Um, cool. And then the other one, which is not as well known, is uh, a record called uh, LGBT, which is uh, off the off my album Space the Rainbow, um, and that has actually recently gotten big. Um, it's actually actually like a four or five five year recording. We're actually going to be doing another one. Um, it's basically starting to become an anthem on TikTok. It's starting to really kind of pick up some steam on TikTok. There's not a lot of people that have listened to it because that particular song isn't like really, you know what I mean, big. I did it in 2015 with another artist out of London. Her name was uh, Jazz Kahina, and she's no longer a really an active active uh, recording artist anymore so that's why we want to do it me and issue are working on uh you know doing it with a more prominent artist um to to really you know bring it relevant because where there's 30 there's 3,000 where there's 3,000 there's 3 million oh yeah i mean it's just interesting today that you know because of streaming you really have to hit millions to make any money and even then Mm -hmm. you, you don't make the money you did on a download well, I, I uh, or you don't make the money you did if you get it and played in in very in radio rotation in various markets. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think what I think what what do you think for like being a person that works with artists? Like I've been working toward like I do the podcast, I do sync mm-hmm. licensing, I'm doing merch, I'm I'm you know I'm looking at trying to get into film, I'm looking at working with guys like Kevin. Um, mm-hmm. But it's like you have to do all these other things. And if it like like it used to be like okay I want my song to make the money, but but it's like you have to do all these other things to make your song make the money. <laughs> well, when I first when I first got into the business, there was an old saying, you know, and and I I'll quote Stevie K, who the guy uh, the guy that Night Beats is named after Stevie K. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he uh, he passed away, but he's he's one of my mentors also, along with uh, Kevin as well. And he always said, "Stay in your lane." But that is not that is not true anymore. No, you like, can't because like you can't. You literally have to learn every Perfect. aspect of of the music industry because in order to make money and to get across, you know, because the market is is changing so much. You know, it's, it is, and I I feel like that. You know, we're going to be entering a market where there's going to be more opportunities than ever before. Um, as a matter of fact, I was working in, with streaming you know, in 2010 on the future of music in 2020, which is now obviously past, mm-hmm. you know, that's why I went down to, that's why I met linked up with you at uh, South by Southwest. That's what I was uh, doing down there uh, all those years ago. Yeah. It's interesting because it's, it's inter- it, the, the thing I, that I really is kind of frustrating though. Cause like as a musician, you want your, um, you want your music to be heard, you know, mm-hmm. Not just as part of some playlist that somebody only has like five seconds to listen to. Mm-hmm. So it's like I think every artist wants somebody to actually, you know, kind of dive into your catalog and 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 get you, right? And and then they come back as a repeat customer. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of like like I, I'm a big music fan, so I went and heard the Allman Brothers when I was like 17, and then I said, "Damn!" and I went and got every single record. I don't know if you get kids to do that anymore because, you know, I, I, I was the kind of kid, like I heard that and I'm like, I'm going to get, mm-hmm. like I heard Zeppelin four. I went and got every Zeppelin record, like within like two weeks. 
And wow. I was like, you know, because it's just, I don't know if people do that. Well, I kind of came in in an interesting time in the business because that is when MySpace Records or MySpace Streaming, they actually developed a record company too of MySpace. They uh, they really changed the uh, the uh, landscape of the music industry with streaming. You know, they were one of the first streaming platforms where they almost did a digital vinyl record, but it made the singles somewhat relevant. Yeah, it's kind of like it seems like the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Because like in the 1950s, albums weren't really the focus. You know, mm-hmm. you, everything was singles. And if you had, you, know, you get to the early 60s and Motown and stuff, they would take a bunch of hits and make a Supremes record or make mm-hmm. a Four Tops record. But it really didn't have a theme. Later, they started to get themes. But it really wasn't, you know, it was more like a greatest hits collection or cl- collection of the songs that, that were hitting. So you're you know, saying so, it, it's almost like a compilation record, kind of like uh, what, yeah. uh, like oh, yeah, a, I don't know if you remember uh, Raucous Records from the early 2000s when they did, uh, they had a lot of different recording artists on there. Some of uh, Most Def's first stuff was on there, Eminem's like, oh, yeah. first stuff. It's like mixtape type stuff. Yeah, like uh, they called it uh, Sound Bombing, Sound Bombing 1 and 2. Oh, yeah. So it was like, yeah, a lot of, I mean, it seems like the, 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 if you go back in the 50s and you would see like James Brown keeps on throwing different songs, same songs on different records. Mm-hmm. Kind of like a, a Chubby Checker, like yeah, with the yeah. twist again. Yeah, the song would show up 10 times because he wants to make the money for it 10 times. He put it on 10 different records. Right? So then you're like, okay, I'm getting ripped off because the same songs going across. Like every time I buy a record, I got the same damn song all the time. But, um, <laughs> And it seems like kind of like that today with the playlist, because you might be on this guy's playlist and that guy's playlist and this play. So you're getting repeated kind of like the 50s, you know, to, to me. That, uh, that's that's kind of an interesting uh, topic. I don't know why I just kind of came up with this concept just impromptu. But, you know, you're talking about uh, a digital like 3D animated uh, virtual reality jukebox, yeah, you know, yeah. which, is, which will be interesting to see how that kind of comes to fruition as as we move forward into i feel like vr is going to be a, a huge player I think, game, in, in I, think, I think games is a big thing for artists because i i've heard mm-hmm. that the gaming companies pay a higher rate than mm-hmm. the streamers right so if you get your song into a game you get a higher rate like if you get like right now i get a higher rate if somebody plays my music on instagram or facebook I make mm-hmm. more money on Instagram and Facebook than I do on Spotify or Apple. Yeah, Spotify is uh, Spotify is not meant for for the indie artist to make money. You know, yeah. um, that's I mean let's let's just be let's just be real and call it what it is. I mean, um, you know, it's it's built for that kind of platform is built for the for the majors. You yeah, know, really your, major, your Adele's, yeah. your Drakes. I mean, you know, I think Drake uh, Drake makes fifty million dollars a year off of you know, just streaming and those kind of applications. But I think that's the problem with, with for the for the regular artist, not to be a political person, but if you get mega artists who grab the bigger piece of the pie mm-hmm. and then you have all these other smaller artists, they're not really a fair platform for the work you're doing. Um, mm-hmm. And it seems like you got to, you go, go and like take it to other places to make mm-hmm. it so it's more, more equal, you know, because I, I just started getting into like, Okay, I'm gonna provide my music to Twitch video game streamers, and I get a higher rate doing that. You know, it's you like get, uh, we experienced that with uh, with 
Stevie and I, you know, we, uh, we released Stevie was on the production aspect, but I've, I've done pretty much everything with, you know, with Stevie, as far as, you know, behind the scenes, I'm kind of, I'm his right hand man, but Stevie, uh, Stevie released a record called Twan up on August 4th. And the first run, we had a song called Amberstyria, which was, uh, which was done. They used a, an, an artist from India on the, on the chorus. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that actual record blew up. And then for some reason it got pulled because we were actually doing, we were actually doing amazing numbers. Like, wow. I mean, major numbers. Mm-hmm. We were making, you know, good, good headway that, you know, in that direction. And then we had to re-release it and the numbers were never the same. I thought that was very interesting. So who forced it? Did somebody forced you to re-release it? Um, no, we had to re- re-release it because it was pulled and then we ended up, uh, we ended up having to re-release the, the entire record. Yeah. Oh, so so yeah, yeah. It, it was some sort of like, you know, complaint. We had to file what they call the counter notification. And oh. so it, there was probably just a logistical issue with clearance or oh, something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. That's the thing with samples. Mm-hmm. That's why I kind of, as an electronic musician, I'm kind of old school. Mm-hmm. I, I stay away from samples. I, I love the use of samples, but I don't have the coin to, yeah. to, to support it. So you have, like, to, you have to either have the coin or the or the connection. That's or, that's or, for or, sure. good, or a good lawyer, <laughs> yeah. or all three. You know, yeah, so. either one. So my whole thing is like I would do everything I can just to let my sense create brand new content, and then hopefully if somebody samples my stuff, then I'll get, I'll get them on the other side. <laughs> yeah. We were, we were lucky to get uh, one of my, one of my tracks on the record was actually got a clearance from Michael Jackson's estate. So we were very, very fortunate to do that. So Ted through a guy named Ted Goldthrope. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. But I think, I think it's like the main thing is like everybody that's using samples really like respect the people that you got it from and, oh, give, absolutely. Them, and give them the bones. Like, cause if you just go and randomly take it and never talk to them, you got a high chance they're going to come after you. <laughs> well, uh, I don't, I don't know. It's kind of interesting because I believe Shaka, you know, we go back to Shaka Khan, right? Um, mm-hmm. And you know, obviously, through the wire was done. You know, Kanye West sold a lot of records, made a lot of money off of it. Shout outs to the shy, but uh, but like I said, um, you know, Kanye West, uh, you know, he sampled it, and I believe it had her blessing. But it's still, um, it still just kind of changed that whole dynamic of of the chorus, and it, it was such a beautiful chorus. I, I, I don't want to say, you know, no disrespect to Kanye West, but I, I feel like it was somewhat butchered, even though that wasn't the intention, you know. So even, you know, you gotta, you gotta pay, you know, your homage when uh, Dr. Dre sampled stuff. I mean, he'd pull out his shirt and say. Funkadelic, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, so. I think it, yeah, I think it's all about having the respect, but also, you know, you know, I I think what I like to do, which is a little different, is um take a sample and then make it unrecognizable. Mm-hmm. Like, so if you take it and you creatively warp it with all kinds of synth technology, then you actually turn it into like like what the original idea was. A lot of rappers and people say, well, I'm just mining this stuff and mm-hmm. I'm just mining it. But if you do it with the technology, the kind of technology I have, you can actually use it as like a sound wave source. And then, you know, you, do- uh, you know who did that really well? Uh, mm-hmm. Krayshawn Gucci Gucci. 
because the uh, the actual chorus, uh, "One Big Room Full of Bad Bitches," is actually a sample. Yeah, I mean, some people are able to do it and get it get it through and not have a problem, you know, because if if it, if it can't match on the on the rights checks, and it's like it can't match like musically at all, it's not on the bar. They can't find it. Then it's new. Well, actually, so, she's. She sampled it from herself, which was yeah. that's the interesting thing about that is uh, her DJ DJ Two Stacks um, actually sampled that from another another song oh. that that they had yeah, called Bumpin' Bumpin'. Oh, that, that, a cool technique today is to sample yourself. Like mm -hmm. if, you, if you go and sample yourself and then you twist it around and you warp it, and you turn it inside out and you pitch it down or pitch it up, you can have just as much success as trying to grab something from somebody else. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you don't have to worry about it because it's yours. <laughs> yeah, because you don't have to deal with the the clearance. I mean, um, that no that uh, the first uh, the first record that I was an executive producer on. You know, we had uh, some vocal samples that we used. Uh, one of them was R. Kelly. You know, but uh, you know, we were able to clear them all. But it just took a longer time to to get the uh, you know that out. Yeah, to how much overhead does that add to a project? I mean, does that make it like months before you can put it out? Uh, well, that it took a, it took us a couple months to. We kind of did that in a. Me and Stevie kind of did that in a rush situation because we actually wanted to get that out before the new year. So we released it December twenty seventh, two thousand eleven, and uh, we released it was called V Neck Robin Hood. It was mm -hmm. that was my first uh, that was my first time as an executive producer, which was kind of interesting to to go through all that entire process. Yeah, that's interesting. Cause I make like, I, well, I'm a bedroom producer, so everything is just me, and and my stuff. <laughs> but yeah, um, I actually, um, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you. There's actually an interesting story behind that. I actually brought, you know, recording artists from the south side of Chicago up to Minot, North Dakota, where I was at, because I worked at a newspaper at the time when I was learning to uh, learning, still learning the ropes of the record industry, and then co-running that label with Stevie. Um, I actually brought a uh, recording artist up from this, from Chicago, and uh, to live with me in Minot, North Dakota. <laughs> so <laughs> it was it was uh, well, it was interesting because you know I was working with an artist that was 20 years old, uh, Javon, and uh, you know it was it was an interesting time for sure. Um, you know I worked with him trying to. You know, we got the record in the record stores. We uh, we came out right next to uh, V Nasty and Gucci Man. You know, which which was on our in the record stores. So that was kind of fun. You know, when they had that uh, that record coming out. Yeah, it just it just seems um, it's interesting what you have to do today because like um, you got to clear the samples. You got to find a way to to get your song, you know, into mm -hmm. the right. Like, like if you're writing a song, I mean, I kind of come from the old school. It's a big project. But now I see a lot of people, they spend they like a project on one song, you know, just because they're trying to get it into the right position so it can be a hit. Um, I think that's I think that's what helped the build the the precursor for the, the mixtape circuit, like, you know, your dat piffs, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. You know, because there was a lot of lot of really good concepts or innovations that maybe couldn't get the clearance to become a full fledged retail product. Yeah, yeah. But yet, yet they were still able to be heard by the world through these mediums. 
Yeah, I think the, the mixtape format is interesting because Tyler, the creator, his new record is like an homage to mixtapes. And mm-hmm. it's being, it being done in that way. And I really think, like, if you listen to going to SoundCloud, you can get, like, a SoundCloud, I'm a big SoundCloud artist myself. And I love the, I love the format because people can listen to all your ideas, right? And, and, and they can get into it. And whether or not you, you can go and monetize it or not depends on what you do. But, but you can get people to hear you in that kind of mixtape format, which is, is like where I, I started and I still am heavily there. I uh, I started on the part of where I started was or part of my background is, you know, working with somebody who would, uh, you know, bootleg those mixtapes. So you were talking <laughs> about production night where he'd just have stacks and stacks of CDRs, mm-hmm. you know, um, and uh, and he had I think he had more entertainment connections <clears throat> through that because that's how you got the back then. This is before, you know, um, probably 2005. That's how you got. That's how you got the word out, the buzz out to the street on what you were doing. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So. I mean, you have to have free samples. You got to give people like a sample of, of a CD and burn it and give it to somebody that mm-hmm. gets in their ear before the MP3 and now mm-hmm. streaming. So now, now you don't have to have like an iPod. You used to have the iPod with the price of admission. You know, you Uh-oh. before that you had the, like the Walkman, and then the you know the the CD version Walkman, and now. You just got, you know, your phone and your whole record collections on your phone. Yeah, I know. You know, I'm kind of wondering how much that's going to create a marketplace for digital archiving, which I still believe is in its infant infant stages at this point. Uh, But, you know, one of the things that I worry about is all this great music just kind of evaporating. Well, there are a lot of albums that I get. I got disappointed when CDs came along. Mm-hmm. There were tons of records that didn't get converted. And then they got out of print, right? And then the same thing's happening with like with, with streaming. You go into the iTunes store, the Android or Google Play Store. Mm-hmm. And right now, for our example, we talked about De La Soul is Dead and Three Foot High and Rising is not on iTunes. It's not on Spotify. And that's a classic. Those are two classic records. Why aren't they there? Probably because they're uh, putting it on uh, Tower Records, which thank God Tower Records is back at least in the uh, at least in the warehouse form. Mm -hmm. You know they uh, they now have three hundred and sixty five thousand titles that you can choose from. So I think that I'm just so excited about the the possibility and the prospects for independent recording artists to make a profit now with with the physical distribution you know yeah, well, vinyl you know, vinyl is yeah I, I've, I've been into looking into vinyl and the vinyl profit for an indie artist is i mean you could be an indie artist and you could sell you know a thousand to ten thousand of them and you make way more money than you did ever mm-hmm. selling five hundred thousand to a million plays on spotify you can make more money Absolutely. And I, I'm just excited about uh, that prospect. I don't know how long, it, it, if it's just going to be kind of a quick fad. No, here I, or there. I, I, I don't think so, because I was looking at this company that makes high-end record consoles. Mm-hmm. And there's a bunch of companies making really super high-end, high-fidelity record consoles. And they've got like tube amps, really high-end uh, styluses. Uh, super, you know, super high fidelity. You know, they got vacuum tube amps. They got super high quality styluses. Like, 
cartridges system and people are building like really high-end systems because they're people that want the feel of vinyl and it's not just a fad it's like people want to have that record because it's a physical thing and i think when you physically have like a it's just like a record, phone you can touch yeah. it it becomes yeah. your property yeah i think like people like the artwork people mm -hmm. like the liner notes people like that be able to take out a vinyl and then realize I am unplugging from my smartphone, right? I am going to put on a nice set of headphones. I'm going to sit in my chair, like in like 1974, mm -hmm. you know, and smoke a cigar or a cigarette or whatever. You're not supposed to do that. But, but you know, actually sit there and listen to the music and not be distracted by your phone or your computer mm -hmm. or your girlfriend or your wife. You actually just sit there and you focus on the music. And there's nothing like getting that kind of sound, a vacuum tube sound out of really good stereo. And people are buying them. I, I actually checked with this company and I wanted one. And the thing that it was like an $8,000 system and they were like, they, they got too many orders. Wow. So so the people are buying them. I mean, they're anywhere from some of them are a thousand to like $8,000. And the people are buying them off the shelves. People are buying vinyl and they want really nice machines to play it on. And they're mm -hmm. making them. They're making them one, again. So. One thing that I was worried about when uh, when iPods and, and streaming first became relevant was that you were going to lose that that interconnectivity, that that social aspect of of buying the records that that make that make that experience so great. You know, when you're going to a vinyl store, I mean, yeah. that used to be uh, that used to be kind of you know my. My still is, it's, still my, it's still my thing. <laughs> it's it's still uh it's still a great coping mechanism for everything else that you know somebody faces. Well, if you think about it, like I am a big fan of a band called Sun Ra, which is a great American jazz band, and they have mm -hmm. tons of rare records they did in like really small distribution. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm a big fan of going into a record store because I'm like a comic book collector too. So like so I go if I go into a comic collector and I go find like a 1962 Fantastic Four Jack Kirby comic book, then I go I go through the moon, right? If I go find a 66 Sunra record that's super rare, I go through mm -hmm. the roof. I mean, there's there's a certain type of person that's a collector that, that wants to do that. And it's kind of like if I uh, if kind of like if I found the Winston's Amon brother. Yeah, um, you know, yeah. which I had been, I've been looking for, for a while, or even, uh, like, uh, when I was at South by Southwest, I found, uh, it wasn't a rare title, but it just was something like I had to have in the moment instantaneously, you know, one yeah, of their yeah, moves yeah. after I went to the panels, I was like, oh my God, Thomas Dolby golden age of wireless you gotta have this on vinyl. You know, it's the same thing. Like, uh, I guess there's just, a. Uh, there's just that personal feel, like I said, you know, with the phone, you know, it becomes part of your property it becomes part Part yeah. of an extension of you, you know. Um, yeah, I think there's nothing like it, and I think there's a lot of bands. You know, I actually been supporting some of the bands I interview, and I've been buying their vinyls, you know, because I, I I like it if they have it. Um, and you know, it's just it's just it's something it, it really cool. And this is why I think people, you know, it's an experience when you can get the lyric sheet and you can actually read it. It's not CD size; it's actually big enough to read. There's a lot of art, you know, so there's like art that you can, and the thing is like today, like you can put postcards in it, you can do a poster, you can put stickers, you can, so you have an opportunity to have multiple things like merch, you know, there's like, you can, you can sell a t-shirt with it, you can do a lot of cool mm -hmm. stuff.
And then what happens is your fans not just going to engage on one song. They're going to engage on the whole project and they're more right. likely to come back. And that becomes can... an entire, uh, I think the exciting thing about it, uh, Keith, is that it becomes, a, it becomes an experience. It's that it's a whole interactive thing. Yeah. And, um, and that just, that just enhances the music, you know, yeah. um, yeah. which enhances the live performance. It builds subcultures. It builds even subgenres of music. Well, you think about it, like if you did a small show, like in New York, I would do shows. And at that time I had CDs and, you know, after the show, I'd go to the merch table and then it's a way to connect. So then mm -hmm. you can like, you sign in the t-shirts, you're giving out your card. And so if you just have what, what like MP3, mm -hmm. you can't sign it, you know? So if you, but if you got a CD or vinyl and a t-shirt and a poster, then that fan gets a connection, and then they know. Then I had people that would show up at multiple gigs because they mm -hmm. wanted to see if I had a different poster, did I have a different shirt, did I have a different album, and I actually did. Cause I'm crazy, and I actually had in one year three records, and in one year wow, three that's different a, shirts. that's a lot of that's a that's a record almost every quarter. Yeah, I was crazy. I was doing them all the time, and I I still I mean this year I did like four records, and I got another one coming already. Um, but um. I just don't. I don't stop writing. But um, you, uh, it, you do focus on like placements for for t uh, f television, film, uh, etc. Or or I do you, uh, are you even was, trying to do yeah, stuff with different artists? I was part of Music Gateway uh, in the UK, and I actually got a couple of place things there where I actually got some distribution deals and some things there. But yeah, I'm always looking like like the big the biggest deal I got lately was I got this deal. <clears throat> to license my music for Twitch streamer uh, streamers, mm -hmm. so I actually have a deal. I'm in BMI, so you know BMI is my main um, pro organization, and I got this deal. Performance with rights organization, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And we've got my stuff licensed for Twitch streamers, and I get a certain rate, which is higher than what you get on Spotify or Apple or whatever. Um, when I got my first royalty check, that was that was like a, a dream come true. I, I think it was I think the first royalty check was about forty five dollars, but uh, so it wasn't it wasn't a significantly mind blowing number. But just to have those sheets of and see where everything was played in Switzerland and yeah. all of these all these other countries, I think was it was absolutely incredible experience. Um, you know, to, to deal with for sure. And that's what's interesting. Cause a lot of the music, you know, I, I, people I interview, I mean, I interview bands from like Iceland, Australia, mm -hmm. you know, Norway, Netherlands, because, you know, I do very experimental music and I find actually have a lot of women artists that I interview mm -hmm. and, and they're very, they're not, they're now like Bjork or Fiona Apple, but they're very experimental and they're doing a, really cool stuff. <laughs> I had a friend that actually, uh, she was, uh, she started up, uh, what they called spoon magazine, a lady friend of mine. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, she, uh, she actually threw parties for Bjork because she was one of the first, uh, subjects on, on the cover of her magazine. Oh, wow. Yeah. But yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I, well, I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of Tori Amos, uh, mm -hmm. Liz Fair. Um, I like riot girl bands like Sleet or Keeney, um, and wild flag. Because it really, like, it, it, the interesting thing with a lot of the people I've interviewed, I probably have interviewed 70% of the people on my show are independent women artists that are doing very experimental, cool stuff. 
Like and I always, uh, I always think, challenge challenge the guys. Like you guys need to be as good as they. <laughs> think uh, one uh, one artist that actually is on uh, the intro to my record uh, is Kate Tempest. Oh, cool. Yeah, um, she's a. They do a. I do an intro uh, with her on on my record space, space the rainbow. Yeah, so um, that was that was really cool to to have her, you know, spoken words artist like that, and to have yeah 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 spoken and to have me me just kind of babble and do my my little ditty on that as well. So what's cool, I think that, that today I was talking to somebody, a Japanese um, artist, and she is very much um, into this idea cross genre, or like mm-hmm. you know so. Like the idea of taking like a Lou Reed spoken word mm-hmm. and then mixing it with a hip hop beat or taking like a punk aesthetic and then throwing like, you know, like a jazz beat on it. Mm-hmm. Like so going in and, and maybe even going like taking a 1920s flapper style and then that's, rapping over it, you know, but, that's but, you, really can, sick. but you can do crazy stuff today. Mm-hmm. like the, so, so people would say, oh, you shouldn't do that. And I said, well, that's the first thing you should do. So when they tell you like don't do it, then they, that that's probably the thing cue that you should do it. <laughs> I think the 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 most commercially successful innovator, um, I have to give some props to somebody who's on my record is uh, ASAP Rocky. ASAP yeah, Rocky ASAP did uh, he did uh, he did uh, Love Sex Dreams. Who uh, actually I worked with uh, Jim Johnson's Entourage for a while. That was uh, the producer out of Miami that uh, produced that record called LSD. That's the acronym love sex dreams. But uh, I think he really, he really found that, that innovative uh, and creative, you know, cross pollinization as you will. Do you think think that's where the industry is going or do you think that people are, are, are are saying stay in the lane? I think we talked about the stay in the lane isn't really working. I, uh, I, I think that's where it should be going. Um, You know, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's where it's going enough. But I am starting to see even like uh, I listened to a couple country tracks uh, recently and I was like, wow, um, you know, David, David and I were in the studio listening to it. And uh, I was like, wow, that's a tornado weight right there. You know, so yeah, I think that yeah. that's very interesting. I think Nelly kind of set that precedent commercially. commercially yeah, yeah. Country, country is taking hip hop and mm-hmm. taking a rap. And I never thought that was ever going to happen because, like, when I think of country, I think like Waylon Jennings and and Johnny Cash, and uh, you know, and that's kind of where, where my head's at. And mm-hmm. you know, like Americana, like the band and Bob Dylan doing mm-hmm. the weight. That that you know that that is like my and they're Canadian, but they they they're kind of faint in Americana. But <laughs> but um, it's. That's I really like that. I like that Americana roots thing. I think it still has a place. I, I think it's cool to, to to hybrid it, but I am kind of a maybe a traditionalist when it comes to some forms mm-hmm. like that. I think those forms like that, like you know, like a jazz bebop or something. Well, bebop is bebop. It's kind of like uh, I'll quote uh, I'll quote Theolonius Monk. He stood on the shoulder of giants. You know, and and that's that's he's talking about innovation in within records, you know, but he actually, you know, took his inspirations to create, you know, yeah. something and layer it on top of it, which is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look at it like fusion, mm-hmm. you know, everybody thinks like like that Miles did it first, but Sunra was doing it, you know, mm-hmm. a little bit ahead of him. I mean, Sunra had the first Moog, 
of any any band. You know, they they had one of the first ones Robert ever gave to anybody. Gave it to Sunrise. Sunrise was one of the first ones to commercially use it because a lot of the other jazz bands said, "Well, that's not real, mm-hmm. so we can't. That's not a real instrument, so we can't use it." And and you know, and then later we get Herbie Hancock with the Funky Headhunters, but that's mm-hmm. like in the '70s. You know, it's like Sunrise did that in like '58. <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, I, especially when it comes to music and experimentation, I hate the word can't because, yeah. because there are so many different things that you, that you can do when you, when you learn how to manipulate psychoacoustics. Oh yeah. I mean, you should try to do, I mean, it's like Hendrix, like when he was doing his feedback, the engineers wanted to EQ it out mm-hmm. and he had to fight tooth and nail to keep all his sound. And it must have been like hard as hell because he's doing something that people are saying, that's noise. That, that, that's got to get cut. And it feels you know, like uh, t- today maybe that's going on a little too much too with the super clean producers aren't allowing like a Hendrixian innovation because they're saying, oh, that's too out of range. I can't do that, you know? You know what's, uh, you know what's interesting? Um, you know, you talk about Hendrix, and I, I kind of revert back to or digress to when I talk to uh, Richard Spencer. I talked to him for 54 minutes. And, you know, the perception, uh, this is, there's probably a little bit of uh, jealousy involved, but the perception was that he just got himself a bunch of white boys and started scratching his ass with a guitar. <laughs> you know, that's what that's exactly what Richard uh, told me, you know, and I just think that was kind of interesting because that was, because he was doing the innovative stuff, but I think it's that can't again that you know um, that that whole you know you have to follow the parameters of these rules. No yeah. rules are meant to be broken, right? Yeah, I mean, because you think about the Kinks. I mean, the Kinks got you really got me now. They got that sound because they broke their amp. Mm-hmm. They they actually physically broke their amp on purpose. Mm-hmm. Like like Ray, I think Dave, Dave Dave Davies, like not Ray, but his brother, mm-hmm. said you know he got pissed off at his amp, and then he recorded it, and then they say, hey, that sounds really kick ass. But then the engineers were like, that's wrong, that's broken. Mm-hmm. But but that broken sound actually kicked off that kind of pre punk heaviness that you get from the Who that you get from Zeppelin, that you get from Deep Purple, because somebody decided to kick their amp and F it up. And then suddenly now you got this sound that you're not supposed to use, but now you use, you know? So Those like, are uh, <laughs> what they uh, reference as the happy accidents, right? Yeah, yeah, the happy accidents. The thing I, I think the problem I have with the DAW mm-hmm. is sometimes the DAW does not allow that. And, and that's why I use a lot of hardware because you, you, more, that's why you go gravitate more towards the analog versus the digital audio workstation. Well, even I use digital, but I use it with hardware. Like mm-hmm. I use digital hardware sense. So I use modern sense that can do modern things, mm-hmm. but I put them into hardware, not software. So I don't get something telling me I can't, I, I'm not in the right key that, that I'm doing, not doing the BPM exact. Because I don't want to do like if you're doing like advanced jazz work, mm-hmm. you're not necessarily going to be on the BPM, and you not you might switch key, right? You might mm-hmm. be a little out of tempo, you might be a little out of sync. But if you listen to Keith Richards, if you tried to put him on the clock, you can't. Mm-hmm. You know, I think so that's so- what uh, <laughs> I think that's what Quincy Jones refers to as magic numbers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, because I mean, the Stones, like, you know, their drummer's on time, but Keith's mm-hmm. not on time. You know, <laughs> Keith is kind of doing this sloppy guitar, but it's not really sloppy, but people could say it is, but it is, it, it's him. Mm-hmm. That's, that's his personality. And you don't want to EQ that out. You know, you don't want to knock that. That's the problem today in the industry. It's like, I don't, I think a lot of producers, if they ran into a kid that's playing like Keith, mm-hmm. they like, they, they say he can't play. You know, yeah. and I'm like, that's totally well, it's wrong. It's kind of the same thing with, uh, you know, Bob Dylan. He's one of the most, pro- he is the most prolific songwriter in history, but uh, his voice is not not exactly what you would refer to as uh, technically not, sound. Yeah, it's not, no, it's not pitch perfect, but in its own way, it's beautiful. I mean, if you listen to Tangled Up in Blue. Because he sings from here. Yeah, yeah. If you listen to Tangled, Tangled Up in Blue or Idiot Wind, mm-hmm. nobody else can sing those songs. Mm-hmm. Those songs are his. And that's the cool thing about it that people forget. Like if you're a singer songwriter like mm-hmm. a Dylan or like a Lou Reed, right? There's certain songs that are your song and like really nobody else can really cover them because you're so unique in in your voice and your style. And that to me is the heart of art. It's uh, even uh, even another singer songwriter, which we discussed on a, on a previous uh, podcast uh, that you did with, with David. Um, Van the Man, oh, you Van, know, Van yeah, Morris. Van's like, yeah, Van's unique because mm-hmm. he's got this whole Celtic mystery, right? So he brings all this Celtic mysticism with this blue eyed soul. So he can sing as good as any Motown guy, mm-hmm. and, but he's bringing in all this stuff about the mystic and this Celtic mm-hmm. mis- you know, this romanticism. You're, you're referring this- to Into the Miscuit, into the yeah, mystic yeah. Album. But even yeah. that, if you get you get, he has all this Celtic stuff. We will talk about like the Knights at the Round Table. We'll talk about mm-hmm. King Arthur. We'll talk about all this old chivalry, and he brings up all these ancient things. Mm-hmm. He'll he'll bring up like you know all these old poets, all these old writers. And so he's like a well-read guy. So he's throwing in Dylan-level literacy. With, it's the with, same thing with uh, somebody who you who drew your inspiration for your acronym. Um, you know, uh, Donald Fagan. Oh yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. But also, like a lot of what I do is like it's science fiction. You know, a lot of what I'm into is like Isaac Asimov and Ray Bradbury. And so you know, you dance like the the the, the dance electric. Um, you know, you, you just kind of take the idea that electricity is living and you could have a character like a Josephine Electric is this living being that's inside your synth and she's your synth is a is a woman that's coming out of the synth and you're mm-hmm. talking to her and you're, you, you know, like like Hendrick said, he's kind of making love to Electric Lady, you know, mm-hmm. and Josephine is an Electric Lady. <laughs> so that's what the idea is. But she's um, going to be uh, she going to be coming out with any uh, retail products. Oh, she, 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 her name is on every ghost album and she actually uh-huh. has a couple of singles uh, that are just hers. And we mm-hmm. actually have toyed with actually doing a full Josephine record without the ghost to say it's Josephine. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, at some point we, 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 we have had artists draw her and mm-hmm. create her character. And we're thinking about in the future animating her mm-hmm. um, and then doing like a full project that would be an animated Josephine would have videos for every kind of like a maybe like a aha video type of uh, con- concept with that maybe yeah it could, yeah it could be like a two D maybe not as ambitious but that that was Look, a yeah. huge huge project but yeah 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 we had ideas to have it two D um, mm-hmm. we've had ideas to do it like more like um, 
like modern, like Pixar level stuff, but that's a lot of money. So the two the two D version, like a comic book, uh-huh. um, would be more doable. And we've actually looked at it. Um, it's something we probably are going to do at some point. Um, you know, whether we do it at a really kind of indie low level and get like graphic artist students to like, you know, mm-hmm. we go hire art students, say you want to be part of this and get your stuff published. <laughs> um, so we, sometimes we come up with new ideas where we get people to like do something and uh, they get, you know, they get the credit. And if we make money, they'll make money. But, but um, that that's the idea is to kind of, you know, get an idea and actually do it and do it in a mm-hmm. workable way. That actually we could actually get it published and get it done. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. That well, I I would definitely love to hear that. You know what's what's impressive about you, Keith, is that you have such a repository of of music. I'm sure you've done all different types of experimentation with instruments and everything. I'm sure it would just be amazing to to dig into that catalog. Yeah, I mean the catalog is like at one point we had a bunch of stuff. And we've kind of pared it down. And we, right now in circulation, we kind of got like four or five hundred songs. Mm-hmm. But, I, I, but you know, and, I, I was I was thinking the number was more like four thousand, correct? Yeah, yeah. Well, on um, SoundCloud, our original SoundCloud that we had a couple of years back, we had up to that many. Wow, out there. And then we re, then we, re, we basically it was under a different name, <clears throat> and uh-huh. then we reconfigured to be under the Ghost. So like under the Ghost, we brought back out of that four thousand like four hundred of them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I, I think that's that's amazing. And are there, are a lot of them still available on? Yeah, uh, they're on all they're all, all well, they're all in my libraries. Like I have like I have like a Landar library with all of them. Mm-hmm. So I have the masters of every single one I ever did in my Landar library that I actually have them all mastered. And now I have like a SoundCloud Dolby Labs library mm-hmm. that has like another five hundred. So pretty much, and then I have them all on SD cards. Mm-hmm. So every single song I have is in a big file. On big, I have tons of SD cards. So wow! I I don't have them on just you're hard talking, drive. You're talking old school. Yeah. yeah. Well, I put them on SD cards because SD cards are are super reliable, mm-hmm. and you, and if you you don't lose them. Like if yeah, your hard drive sure. dies, it dies. Like, but your SD card usually survives. I, uh, I I was lucky. I was able to to retrieve some of my uh, some of my interviews. I did an interview with uh, Lady Gaga before the Fame album. Um, you want to talk about an innovator? You know, yeah, yeah, her, she's her, awesome. Her record uh, was was quite innovative. As a matter of fact, a lot of people don't remember. You know, back in the day, and I, I don't want to. I don't want to like you know tick yeah, off yeah. anybody with saying this, but she was basically trying to be a Vanessa Carlton when she first came out. Cause yeah, I, I interviewed she, yeah, her. She was, yeah. I remember seeing her. She was, she wasn't Gaga. She was more mm-hmm. like herself. Like maybe, uh, she, she was sitting behind a baby grand, just like Vanessa. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she was out there and she was more, she was kind of reminds me like with David Boyd, mm-hmm. he was David Jones. And he was wearing like a beetle, like suit. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know who, uh, you know who else is a long forgotten artist. Um, you know, you mentioned during that era, and I've I've kind of dove into some of his catalog. I haven't dove in super deep, of course. Uh, as a matter of fact, I got a sample coming out on my my next record. But uh, Klaus Nomi, a lot oh, yeah, of people yeah. forget about uh, Klaus Nomi because he died of of AIDS, unfortunately, in '83, uh, I believe it was. But he was one of uh, David Bowie's backup singers. As a matter of fact, if you look at some of their outfits, they, uh, they're almost, almost identical. Kind of oh, yeah. like M- MC Hammer and Vanilla Ice had, you know, kind of yeah, matching yeah. pants. 
Yeah, matter yeah, of fact, back I, in the day. <laughs> matter of fact, uh, Stevie K was really good friends with a guy named Tony Briggs who designed MC Hammer's pants. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so that was that was really cool. He's a he's cool. You want to talk about somebody who's an innovative songwriter. His name is uh, Tamichi, uh, mm -hmm. you know, so um, or, you know, or her name or is Tamichi um, for sure. You know, I'm not sure if I got the pronoun right on that, to be honest with you. But yeah, yeah Tony Briggs is, is his name. So. That's interesting. Yeah, well, I, for sure. I, well, I think it's really, it's really awesome. I think we hit our, we were a little bit over our hour mark, but um, mm -hmm. you know, for sure, for sure, I, we, I probably could go on all day. So yeah, yeah, but it's, it's what's cool about this program is we kind of just um, we have some guidelines, but we like to just kind of chat, and we, we it's all about music, our passion for music. You know what mm -hmm. your story is. I'm sure we we, we can we can probably have you come on again, like we did with Kevin. For sure, um, for yeah. sure. One thing, one reason I wanted to come on is I wanted to to show people or encourage people um, that are out there. You know that there are more ways to do it than just actually being involved with the the physical production of of music. Um, you know, and and there are so many different uh, things that you can do: PR, marketing, graphic design, um, you know, promoting all of that stuff. And I think a lot of people don't realize that there's a lot of different ways to to get involved with the record industry. And I've been able to I've ran my own record label or co-ran it. I'm sorry, co-ran my own publishers. What I should say under under a record label to be more more correct about you. I'm a co-publisher. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I I became a singer songwriter. I became a rap artist. I did uh, PR. You know, I've done, that's my wheelhouse. I did, yeah. uh, you know, marketing and promotions, that type of thing. But I've learned all of this kind of systematically over the years. And I've, I've been fortunate to, to be around some really, really intelligent people. And, um, you know, that have really just taught, taught me the ropes and taught me the game. Well, I think that's the opportunity within the industry I found you know that you know a lot of the friends I was with were in our garage bands, our pizza you know pizza palace bands, right? Those and, pizza palace fans are great, <laughs> by the way. Yeah, but then their their wives and their girlfriends said, "Hey, that's not that. What are you doing?" Right? Mm -hmm. So they all got they all had to stop, and I just never stopped because then I was able to get gear mm -hmm. that wouldn't annoy my wife. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I can do everything where nobody hears it. Mm -hmm. Where if you're like a garage band is like, you got like an eight year old kid that has to go to school and you can't be blasting in, in the garage. <laughs> I, uh, I imagine, uh, I imagine Keith in some capacity, I'll be 70, 80 years old and I'll still, if I'm still around or blessed to be around by that time and still be involved in some capacity with music. This is just, uh, this is just where I, where I am. And, uh, you know, this is where my heart is and following my heart's been a kind of a tough thing. You know, sports and music are all I've done to make a paycheck. That is well, the only two things that I've ever, <laughs> ever been able to do. As far as the uh, newspaper industry, I started in that too as well. The newspaper industry, music and, uh, and sports, which I wrote about the sports industry. That's the only way I've ever made a paycheck. Well, I think it's cool to be able to do something you love. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I spend a lot of my day doing a lot of like tech stuff that I like to do, but I would rather do this like a hundred percent. And so I am doing everything I can to transition more into doing this type of stuff and the ghost stuff and the peg stuff 
as much as I can. Um, I'm not, so, I'm not really alive if I'm not, if I don't have those two elements in my life, you know, yeah, sports yeah. and music. I'm just, I'm kind of a shell of who I am. The same thing with the stuff that you do with, with Peg, you know, I'm sure it makes you come, come to life. It's your coping mechanism. It's your why, yeah, it's why your, would you, yeah, I think that think people understand about musicians, like they'll do a day gig for mm -hmm. eight or six or eight hours and then they'll spend like the rest of the night doing their passion. Right. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. And, you know, and it doesn't matter if they got paid for it. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of us do it and eventually we get the dividends. It's like an investment. We, we make mm -hmm. an investment in ourselves. We make an investment in our dream. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes you hits and something. And the thing is like, you gotta be smart. Like as you get into the game, you gotta like, okay, I can't just be throwing darts at the wall. I got to figure out how to do this in a more pinpoint uh, it, pinpoint it in a more effective mm -hmm. way and get it done. And the podcast really has, you know, people say, well, how can you do all this stuff with other people? Why would you do that? It's called sharpshooting. <laughs> well, also you think about it, like if you like a lot of artists would say, I don't have time to be talking to all these other artists when I got to work on my brand. Mm -hmm. And I say, when I do this, it increases my brand. You know? Because you're you're increasing your knowledge uh, repository of knowledge and your experience. Yeah. Plus, people get the you know I help somebody. It's kind of like you pay it forward. You go and interview somebody for free. You promote their project for free. You get a lot of good karma. Right? Absolutely. Because then they come back, and if you have something, then they say, "Oh, I'll go tell somebody about Peg," or "I'll go do this," and then, "Oh, I may do this free for." I, mean, I got people for this festival that are doing poster designs for me, you know, they're doing all kinds of stuff, helping me out. And, you know, because I, I interviewed them or I, I did something for them. And it's, it's, called, like, uh, it's called good synergy. Yeah. You just, you do it because like you believe in the scene, you believe in, in the idea that indie musicians should try to have a collective. So this is like a podcast collective. Anybody that's ever been on this show, We've had people cross collaborate. We have people talk, talk to other artists and say, Hey, I want to talk to this person that Keith talked to, that, you know, the Peg talked to, because like I, I found out about them. I didn't know about them, you know. I, I, I love introducing people to, you know, other, other people within, in the creative field because that's, that's how, that's how good synergy happens. It's, it's kind of the fundamental concept of the secret. I'm not a big advocate of that or proponent of that book. But mm -hmm. you can take a lot of the basic fundamental elements from that book and, you know, kind of kind of take it into the your own energy that you permeate. Yeah, I think it's the best thing to do is, um, mm -hmm. you know, like I found like I when I would just spend it all my time on peg mm -hmm. and, I, and I didn't talk to people like you, mm -hmm. you know, I had like, you know, maybe 1500 people listening to me. And, and now you know I got like on on, sound, on my Spotify for for the podcast thirty three thousand, you know, and then then you know I got like you know on my SoundCloud like ninety five thousand listens, um, so wow. it's like so it's like if, if, if you wouldn't think that talking about somebody else's work is going to get people to your work. Well, it, it, and it's it's been very successful. It's how I've kind of gravitated towards some of your work, um, you know, like I. I got you on the, on the par, got David on the podcast and I got Kevin on there. And then, yeah. you know, I was like, well, well, wait, there's Miller Campbell over in Montana, you know? Um, and yeah. it's like, I, cause, cause <laughs> I, I just think, I just think you do a phenomenal job there, Keith. And, you know, I definitely want to just keep 
you know, building a, a community because that's what it's about. A, a lot of people yeah. think that, you know, focus on how we're different more than how we're alike. And I, I've never been about that that program. My whole thing is like I if people thought, well, you're only like EDM. I was like, no, no, no. I talk to punks. Mm-hmm. I talk to heavy metal guys. I talk to DJs. I talk to country. I mean, I've talked to three bands out of Nashville. There are Americana uh-huh. country bands. Talk to I talked to like Italian speaking, like you know, cello players. Yes, I saw that. I saw that a couple of weeks ago. That was very fascinating. Yeah, uh, the guy I, that's I, doing his concert in space, right? Yeah, yeah, the so. space pianist, the guy, an astrophysicist that does uh-huh. like, um, like that, that, um, like that kind of like uh, the tra- Trans Siberian Orchestra type of thing, right? So he's got this grand piano and then he's got these rock, heavy metal kind of rock and then dancers and stuff. And he's playing on the festival, like not to mention like Peg Festival on the 16th to the 18th. And um, yeah, we've got so many different types of, we got spoken word poet. We've got, you know, guy, you know, space pianist. We got Peg, I'm playing with all my gear back there. Um, and um you know, we got a lot of cool stuff going on. and it, I'm, it's, I'm open, though. We can add uh, Miller Campbell to that country fold. She does an amazing job with uh, her records over in Montana. Yeah, well, I'm totally into country. Like, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big, like, well, I'm kind of old school country. <laughs> but, but like, um, uh, like, are you talking about Patsy Cline or like yeah, George yeah, Strait? Yeah, well, Patsy Cline, uh, you know, Johnny Cash, you know, Willie Nelson, uh, Waylon Jennings, that that type of thing, you know, like the band Neil Young when he's doing like Harvest type stuff, um, mm-hmm. you know, that type of sound is like what I've always been. I've I've always had a, a deep love for for like you know that kind of like uh, getting into like you know my I, what story is my 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 mom is from Morgantown, West Virginia. My fa- my grandfather was a coal miner. Mm-hmm. All he wow. did is it, all he did was play like Johnny Cash all day. Like so, every mm-hmm. time I go go to the, go to vacation at his house, he built himself because coal miners are kind of self reliant. Uh, <laughs> Johnny Cash is from uh, Arkansas, right? Just yeah, outside he's of from uh, Arkansas. Arkansas. Yeah, but like coal miners mm-hmm. love him. So it's like I, as, as a young kid, oh, I was sure. introduced, and they were like this kind of outlaw attitude and just kind of just raw. Uh-huh nature of his stuff is kind of like a, like a country punk you know he's like he's kind of like he's like dangerous like james dean or something uh it's wow. like that whole that whole you know he's a very boy well, he started forest fires and did all kinds of crazy things he's like he, he you know he would sing at Folsom prison he he didn't care like i think the prisoners were his friends mm-hmm. they, they, no they for sure yeah it's like so he's like he's the, he's the guy in black he's he's the guy and then, you know, like before all these gangster rappers and stuff, you know, Johnny Cash is the original gangster. <laughs> well, I, I think uh, I think you would have found the studio that Kevin and I started in very interesting. Uh, there were people coming and going all the time, and uh, there may have been a little bit of a little bit of distribution going on there. <laughs> you know, a little bit of kicking back, having beers, having a great time, and people would you know, gravitate in groups and they would go down to the studio and, you know, they would record some of the most beautiful stuff I've ever heard in my life. Well, it sounds kind of like Sound City and, you know, like any of the old studios where people would just be in there, mm-hmm. you know, in the old, old world of like, you know, six that's months. Where I, that's right. <laughs> that's where I started. Uh, you know, I started with Kevin in, in an attic and we had <laughs> Studio A 
and then the the basement was studio b and the living room was kind of where all the artists would kind of hang out in between sessions and kick back and yeah. hang out and stuff like that and you know we literally have like 20 or 30 coming in at a time this was during the age of the independent artists really starting to gain traction and mm -hmm. so it was kind of neat to be on you know you don't think about it you know until you actually do it or you know or till later but it's kind of neat to be on the the cutting edge of of all of all of that and kind of experience that myself yeah i mean i i think i i, I kind of well, no, I'm, I'm. I guess I have um, like a nostalgia for the old studio type type of system where you actually had to be on like a Neve console and, mm -hmm. and be be in there. Like you know, I watched this whole thing on Pink Floyd and how they were on the console actually drafting the album. Um, it, it, it's a it's the same thing with uh, Stevie issue. I'm a beast. We have a a guy called Z Zeus from L.A. Mm -hmm. And uh, and he did it with a Chicago artist named Ready Fire, and if you look at their if you look at their video, they're actually recording right right there together in a in a in a closet. You know, yeah, they're well, doing yeah. it organically. Yeah, there's a lot. Of, I saw this band during um, COVID um, that I really got. I don't want to name check them, but they actually recorded like in Louisiana, mm -hmm. and um, they did it in a little house. They put the whole band in a house, kind of like Big Pink, and they mic'd like the drums were in one room, guitar players in another room, and in this little house, like Big Pink, and they recorded the whole thing, and they did it like second, third take on a reel-to-reel -reel analog. And the it's thing a, is, it just sounds phenomenal. <laughs> it's the same way uh, uh, Bone Thugs and Harmonies uh, vocals were recorded in a trailer. Yeah, it's just you know, something they, about that. Yeah. I think Brock Hampton the, recorded in a house. You know, when before they got big, Brock Hampton used to record in a house. They had this house and they were in the closet. You got like videos of them in the closet with their mics and in the room. One guy's in another room and the other guy's got like a sheet over his head and in the, under the mic. You know, it's like, yeah, because there's something that's cool. The, that's the it. kind of indie. I didn't mean to talk over you. Sorry, Keith. That's the kind of, uh, that's the kind of indie vibe that I came from, you know, um, and uh, I, I kind of feel like that's a lot of my roots, although I've, I've kind of classed it up a little bit as I, I've moved along. Yeah. But, yeah, but at yeah. the same time, like, you know, I started there and then two years later, you know, I'm on the phone with Lady Gaga. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, yeah, yeah. and I, I uh, ended, up, uh, ended up getting that uh, connection through a guy named uh, Dale Kawashima, who mm. used to be the, uh, the, the VP of uh, ATV, which was uh, Michael Jackson's label. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. Yeah, that. and now he uh, he runs his own company called uh, Singer and Songwriter Universe. I'll give a little uh, plug in there. Yeah, that's cool. And then I, I uh, also <laughs> was uh, also was part of uh, you know obviously Kevin's group, and then I was also part of an entourage uh, called Passport Lewis, who is a, a rapper. His uh, and uh, his brother Antoine, his brother Antoine was uh, was the one who did the uh, Hustlers Make G's album from the mid nineties. Hmm. You know, which was uh, distributed through a company called Ichiban. Um, Ichiban also released of uh, the first uh, Vanilla Ice uh, hooked album, which later hmm. became SB or SBK repackaged it, which was a subsidiary of Capital uh, to 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 the extreme. But uh, Vanilla Ice's uh, Ice Ice Baby actually came out in 1987, 
because mm-hmm. and it was repackaged in 1989 and and released in 1990 you know for mass consumption but if you look at his first album it's called hooked and that was a totally different feel that was more of that miami south sure, beach yeah. a1a sure. beachfront sure. avenue kind of feel yeah, well, it's interesting. Like, like a lot of bands, they start off at that like kind of more intimate level, and mm-hmm. then they get picked up, and then they they clean them up, and sometimes they clean them up a little too much. <laughs> the uh, the interesting thing about Vanilla Ice's album is there was a guy on there that got points on the record named Mario Lavelle Johnson, and uh, he uh, he actually helped fund. And I know there's there's that whole, you know, you know, urban legend. It was probably just two lawyers getting on the phone. I don't want to I don't want to debunk that too much to to ruin the Suge Knight's, uh, you know, aura. But uh, but at the same time, Mario Lavelle Johnson wrote I, pieces of Ice Ice Baby. He was a rapper out of Dallas, and uh, they they said, well, um, you know, uh, they got the points off the record. Actually, funded a record called Death Row, which funded you know, eventually Dr. Dre, which founded Eminem, which founded 50 Cent, you know, uh, it's a shoulder of of giants concept that Theolonius Monk, you know, always, always talked about. Yeah. You never know where something's going to go. You know, Mm -hmm. you get, you get that investment in Motown and created like a whole dynasty, you know, and and you never would have thought that a guy, you know, coming off and out of the car industry, going to create such a big iconic record label and have so many great artists on his label and yeah. Tupac and uh, Tupac Eminem all of all of those guys you know started they can thank Mario Lavelle Johnson um and and of course Tommy Kwan who was uh I, Vanilla Ice's manager you know mm-hmm. as well because that was the, there was such a historical significance with that because that paved the way that and and Clear Channel, even though it's a mm-hmm. dysfunctional channel, but uh, Steve Smith, who is the VP of Clear Channel, helped get them on mainstream radio, uh, Death Row. So yeah, I mean that that whole thing. I remember like when I first heard on NWA, and they mm-hmm. were on you know Easy's label, and um, I was just wow, like ruthless the records, right? So mm-hmm. that was I remember getting those tapes and. They, I don't want to get in trouble, but like when you first got the Ruthless Records, they were on tape, mm-hmm. and for some reason, hustler mentality every, vocab clean is what I say. Well, well, well when it, for some reason, every time I bought that record straight out of Compton, either mm-hmm. I played it too much or the, the tape would break. But I wow. liked the record so much, I would go out and buy it again, and then I was like, then I go and check it. Like I bought that record like five times on tape. We, you know, uh, I mentioned uh, I played it too much, or was it like they wanted me to buy it that many times. <laughs> mentioned, uh, I mentioned Gregory earlier. I got, I, I, we mentioned straight out of Compton. I got to give my props to Gregory from the Winstons. Um, he's the guy who that five second drum loop on Amon Break or Amon Brother, you know, which was the B side to Color Him Father, which won a Grammy and and was uh, as Richard would say, number seven with a bullet, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, um, you know that that was the precursor to to some of the you know some of the early rap, um, you know, or at least that beat was so important in in kind of you know transitioning from the '80s to the '90s sound. Yeah, definitely. I just I'm I'm hoping that someday I can I can build some kind of nonprofit foundation to get Gregory's family the money that they they deserve because they he built such. A dynasty and the fact that he died homeless and alone in Atlanta 
it just it just kills me. Yeah, that's a bad. Well, the problem in the music world is there's a lot of stories of like really good cats that um maybe signed the wrong contracts and didn't understand it and and kind of got themselves in a bad situation. And you know, it, it, I would I, I do encourage anybody that can. Mm-hmm. You know, like like Jack White and Keith Richards, they, they they do spend a lot of time helping a lot of the soul guys, a mm-hmm. lot of the guys that they believe, you know, gave them what they needed to become who they are, right? Exactly, guys, and I so just I, I just feel like because there were so many different permutations of of that particular record, I just feel like and and it he built entire you know, you know, drum patches, um, you're yeah. talking libraries were built on, on the Amman break that I feel like Gregory's family, I would love to give them at some point their due. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe Peg, if we do one of our festivals, we mm-hmm. can have a, have a night where a bunch of bands go and donate their time to do something like that and get it out there. That would that's, be, yeah, that's that something would be phenomenal. Yeah. Cause we're yeah. planning on trying to get this bigger, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of when COVID's over, actually mm-hmm. do a festival with podcast guests, right? Mm-hmm. And actually do it like in New York or, or do it like, you know, because New York is closer to me. That's where I do it. Um, I, I I love, by the way, what you're doing conceptually with the, the bedroom festivals. I feel like that's, you're on the cutting edge of, of what we're going to see more of is not as much physical live performances, which for an empath like myself, mm-hmm. you know, I don't like, I kind of get, I kind of get overwhelmed with, you know, a lot of stimulus. It's, it's very yeah, hard yeah, yeah. for me. So I have to, I have to keep my stimulation down. Otherwise I get kind of overwhelmed and crazy. You know, I guess that's the creative monster that I have to yeah. always kind of tame, you know? Um, but yeah. So. Yeah. The, the, the COVID kind of forced us into it, but the weird thing is I was doing this before it. Um, but, but I, I do like the idea that I can get a band in Australia, a band in Iceland, band in uh you know japan and band in london to all be like in the same stage and get lots of people to pay attention to them um and that's 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 what i want to do going forward i would like the opportunity to get these guys to actually physically be in the same spot one day um Mm -hmm. just because i think it would be cool for the networking but yeah going forward the idea of the bedroom festival is always going to be online if we can make it physical in some cases um, we're going to try to do a, a physical one, but yeah, the, the way the world is to be able to do that is really cool, but I do have to break it off. Um, okay. For sure. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy that we're out here. We are live on all of our channels. Uh, the permanent links are out there. Um, mm-hmm. we can send you the permanent links after, but you know, if you go out to the family, like the ghost, Twitch, family, like the ghost, Facebook, family, like the ghost, YouTube, we are at the top of those pages right now, and uh, we'll, our postings will stay there. And we can provide you with the permanent link so you can tell your friends. Oh, you dropped off. Okay, I guess we're done for tonight. We lost them, but that was a good show. We'll talk to you later.